0: Real life
1: superpowers.
0: If you're an entrepreneur, you need to show me evidence that you've gotten in with these customers, and these customers are just chomping at the bit to get what you have, and they can't get it elsewhere because these are the companies that break through. Like, if they can get it from a lot of other sources, you're just you're never going to grow really fast. You're going to be a small, maybe if you execute really well, a medium-sized company, but you're you're never going to take the market.
1: Hey, everyone. Today we speak with Steve Hoffman, also known as Captain Hoff. He's a venture investor, serial entrepreneur, award-winning author, and CEO of Founders Space, a global startup accelerator that's been ranked by both Forbes and Entrepreneur magazines as the number one incubator for overseas startups. Under his many hats, he's constantly leveraging his vast experience to mentor and empower entrepreneurs, helping them navigate the good, bad, and ugly. He's down to earth and has his sleeves rolled up, ready to share his knowledge, enjoy listening to him
0: real life
1: superpowers up the
2: side it's a bird it's a plane gentlemen we can rebuild him we have the technology it's alive. real live,
0: superpowers
1: so steve welcome to real life superpowers It's fantastic to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We're really excited. What are you up to these days? I've been doing a
0: lot of startup investing and also helping startups all around the world enter the US market. So helping, I was just in Europe. I spent a month in Europe. I looked at a hundred startups. And I'm looking for certain qualities in the entrepreneurs and in the companies. And I found one that I thought was would really be successful. And I'm now bringing them over into the U.S. market, into Silicon Valley, raising capital, doing everything you have to do. That's my business. Wow,
1: that's that's so interesting. What qualities are you looking for? So I
0: work with hundreds of startups every year. So my company's founder space worse, a global startup hub and accelerator. And so I see lots of entrepreneurs. I hear them pitch. And after I hear them pitch, if I liked how they pitched. So the first thing, is how they pitch. And I want to see passion. I want to see people who are passionate about what they're doing. I want to see them very articulate in understanding what they want to accomplish and the steps to get there. You know, people who have thought deeply about it, you can tell, like in the first few minutes of talking to them, you can tell that they re- they live and breathe this. They really understand it. And then uh, when I meet them in person, uh, I go deep. So Number one thing I'm looking for is that they don't have to show me that they have been wildly successful. They can even have failed in the past. That's fine. But what I want to see is that there are times in their life when they have gone above and beyond and pushed themselves and done things that ordinary people wouldn't have accomplished. So it could be forming an organization, a nonprofit organization. It could be uh, leading a team to victory in championships. You know, they're on a sports team. It could be uh, a, a science project that they conceived of and they got other people involved and they carried it out. Those type of things.
1: This makes me think, I'm remembering um, Alex Bloomberg's startup uh, show. Have you? Did you happen to ever hear that? I have not. Okay, so he's a radio personality, and I'm emphasizing this because he's a very articulate guy, and he started a startup called Gimlet, and he was documenting the way in a podcast that became like a top, uh, most listened podcast, like historically. And on one of the first episodes, he was pitching a mega investor, and he was so nervous, and it was like, it was almost hard to listen to. And I'm bringing this up because I'm thinking even people who are articulate by, you know, by nature uh, in some situations where they have to pitch at a high stakes situation, they can really not convey that. So do you ever sort of spot such instances where this is stress and not reflective of the potential of the entrepreneur?
0: I try to. So we all try to look below the surface and see who the entrepreneur really is. And a lot of that depends not just on how nervous they are, but how they answer questions. When you ask them a question, there are some entrepreneurs who will brush over it. Like it's a deep question about their business, and they will give you some answer that is really superficial. At that point, you know, either they're covering up something or they don't understand their business. Uh, So we, we, when I am analyzing people, I'm looking at, I want to understand how their brain works. Like, and and are they the type of person who's really gone deep on something? Has really, you know, success doesn't, we all read about overnight success stories. And I'm sure there are some people, there are people out there who win the lottery, who stumble into something and it just works. But for most people, it's a lot of work. And the people who have the discipline to, to slog through that work, to, to do their homework, to figure everything out, the discipline and the drive to do it, those are the people who ultimately, you know, when, you know, all of us, there's a lot of things out of our control in our lives, but ultimately they end up breaking through and becoming those people you end up reading about as overnight successes.
1: And can you elaborate on that? Like, how can people tune into that zone, in a sense, and, and be able to understand when they're now in a situation that they can either overcome a challenge or or give up? Like, how can people find the strength and be able to persevere? It's really tough. So I had this problem. So I've
0: done three venture-funded startups, two non-venture-funded startups, I have worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs and myself in every single startup I did, there was a moment where I was literally on the floor, like on the floor in pain. I didn't think that what I'm working on would be successful. I had my doubts, things weren't going well. I a lot of times I had been working like trying to raise capital and I've pitched, you know, 20 investors and spent all this time, and then the last deal just falls through. And you are like, you you can't imagine going on. You can't imagine getting up again and going through it again. Yet, I would have to do it because at the end of the day, I knew if I was going to achieve anything, I just had to pick myself up and keep going. And that that's the that's what people have to realize is that it's not going to be easy. Nobody's going to be out there and just hand it to you on a silver platter. You're going to have to work and and fight for every inch you make. And every time you're pushing forward, there are times when you'll just get knocked back and you'll have to go again, or you'll have to find another way to get your goal accomplished. And these are the people like over and over and over again, who I see make it. They're just, they they can get knocked down a hundred times and they're going to get back up because there's literally, there's nothing else they want to do in their life. And they don't just want to sit around. In that
2: sense, it's about how do you make the difference? So, th- there's these people that you identify, and you've done this so long and so successful that have that drive, that you know, that passion, that that X factor as an entrepreneur, getting knocked down and getting back up. But there's this, there's some that are successful, right, and they they did it already once or twice. And then you have to identify the difference between, which for me that's that, that that would be really difficult between the people who are successful and drove, but the hunger went out, the passion, they have the passion, but you know, they don't need it anymore, right? Between the others that, you know, you said the sports club, like they made a successful sports club, they made a successful, you know, nonprofit organization, but they have that X factor drive. Now, how do you differentiate between the two kind of passions or drives?
0: So there are people out there who are really passionate, but they don't have follow through. <laughs> so they're really passionate, but as soon as they hit a wall, they're on to the next thing. And you can figure this out by looking at their history, literally talking to them about the things they did in their lives. When they hit a hard point, did they drive through it? Did they like come up against a wall that was impossible to climb, but figure out a way like digging under it, going around, blowing it up. They figured out some other way past that obstacle. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to see. And let me tell you, um, a lot of people, like the biggest problem people have is that when you hit that wall, that's impossible. You just, you, you, you hit your head against that wall over and over and over, and you can't get through in a certain point you give up. Well, this, I'll tell you the key that I learned in my life. That's the most important thing to actually breaking through, like breaking through and reaching your full potential. And I didn't realize this at first. At first, I believed I had to be Superman. Like I had to be so strong that I, any wall in my way, I could just plow through it. But what I figured out is that you don't have to be Superman. In fact, the the key is f- surrounding yourself with super people, like literally, when, you know, I write about this in my book, Surviving a Startup. And I called it Surviving a Startup because most startups fail. Most people can't do this. Most people don't understand where they get blocked. But where you get blocked usually is not just yourself. It's that you haven't made the right relationships and surrounded yourself with the right people because you can do far more as a, as a group of people than you can on your own. In fact, I like to say no great organization, no great company, no army, nothing that had a big change in the world, no political movement was ever done by one person alone. It's always done by a group of people. No matter how amazing that person might seem, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, they had a group of people around them carrying out their will and making things happen. The first thing, Everybody should do. If you're starting a project, let's say you want to make a movie, let's say you want to launch a company, let's say you want to, you know, start a rock band. It doesn't matter what your dream is. Don't just start it with the people around you. This is the mistake people make. They start it with whoever happens to be available. Do not do this. This is this this is the kiss of death from the beginning. Spend 80 80- Percent of your time, 80% of your time, not working on your idea, not working on your project, not trying to, you know, sell it or anything else, but going out and finding the most amazing people you can possibly find. How do you know? Let me tell you, look for people with skill sets that complement your own. So I don't care what you're doing. If you're in a band and there are other musicians, what you know, can they, if you can't sing, you need to find that just singer. And you would know the singer, right? When you listen to them, you hear enough singers, you know, one that's just blows you away. Enough guitar players, you know, one that blows you away. In business, like the businesses I do, like if you're not a technical wizard, don't code it yourself. Find a technical wizard. Find somebody who's done amazing code, whose brain is just like a computer. If you want This is how I say interview people, and and I'll tell you. The people you want are the people who are natural self-drivers and self-learners. So the the people I like to surround myself with, let's say it's a marketing person. I want to talk, when I talk to that person, that marketing person, they don't just spout what everybody else is saying about marketing. They are like on the cutting edge. They are testing out all the new platforms out there for marketing, all the new marketing platforms. Anything, you know, if there's a new social network, they're already on it and they're they've they're, they're figuring it out. It conferences, they are like networking with lots of different people, books. They are they are they are not just, they are always teaching themselves, they're always online learning something constantly improving themselves, constantly looking for new tools, new avenues, new ideas. That's the type of person I'm after. So when I talk to them and we have a conversation about marketing, they're not just you know, rattling off what every other person rattles off. They're telling me things I don't know. They're going to places I've never heard of. They're you know, learning things and reading stuff that I didn't know was available. Mm-hmm. Then the light bulb goes on, I need to work with this person.
2: That that I understand it, and and, and to, for me that may be the easier part. The scarier part would be, you know, forming a band if we give that metaphor, and then the band breaking up because you know the ego or they see it in different ways because the. The, the What goes together with, you know, a talented rock star that complements yourself is also the idea that he uh, or she can be self-reliant and actually do something differently. So actually, when you disagree, it can, you know, the, like how do you de- diligence the teamwork between that, the compatibility between the entrepreneurs? You know, the statistic that I read last that about uh, more than 60% of the startups that uh, that fail in the first three years have to do with actually the human um, uh part of a part of it more over than the idea or the talents? Absolutely. You, you know, you have to be able to get along with these people. That's the criteria. But you
0: have to understand that people with immense talent, immense abilities, you know, they're not always the easiest person to work with. Look at if you're doing rock bands, look at the Beatles, right? They were always competing amongst themselves. You know, John and Paul in particular, they were like always competing for and when you know, they only lasted four years but look at what they produced in those four years like just absolutely unbelievable so still finding the right people makes all the difference and sometimes you're gonna to have to figure out how to work with these people now that said you need to be able to communicate on some level you guys you know if you can't communicate to this person and and you can't have a shared vision and this is the other thing you get great people to work with you not by making it all about you. You make it about the idea about what you want to accomplish together. You literally, Google did a study of how like great teams work together, and this addresses a lot of your question. And th- they did a study that was actually a little counterintuitive. They found that the teams that performed the best, that you know outperformed everybody else, they had one trait in common, and it wasn't what I just told you that the people were incredible. Like some of their incredible teams actually ran into the problem that you said. They were just all rock stars. Like they're all incredible people at Google, but they ended up fighting and backstabbing each other. And they're, and the team actually ended up accomplishing very little. So it had to be uh, that the people were good because all the people, you know, Google hires are, are pretty darn good. You know, they have PhDs, they're really top of their class. But more equal to that, not only did they have to be really smart, but the teams had to trust one another. It was trust. It was knowing that your teammate had your back, that you could open up and say things in front of your teammate that weren't pleasant, that they did, maybe didn't want to hear, constructive feedback. You know, this These type of teams where the people are, first of all, they completely trust each other. Secondly, they trust each other to the point where they can be open, where they can have open dialogues, where everybody can participate. It's not dominated by just one person. These teams tend to tended to outperform all others, given the fact that the teams had good people. Like if you literally do not have good people in your team, it won't. It doesn't matter how much you trust each other; you are not getting anywhere because the people are incompetent. The people have to be competent.
1: I want to sort of go back and understand. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Like what type of house did you grow up in? I
0: was a dreamer. So I I didn't necessarily want to be an entrepreneur. In fact, the first thing I wanted to be was an artist because my mother was a painter and a sculptor. And so I thought I would be an artist and I was really deep into the arts. Uh, as I grew up, I got into filmmaking. So by the time I graduated high school, I'd made 50 films. Wow. I was also completely into board games. And I'd made you know over 100 board games, like different types of board games. I just loved gaming and I coded computer games. And so I had all these passions and I decided I wanted to go to film school. But my father, he he's an engineer and literally he's a rocket scientist from MIT so completely the opposite of my mom like she's an artist and doing all that and he's and he was like son study computers computers are going to change the world so that was his that was his advice to me as a kid and i looked up to my dad you know naturally he's very smart and i decided okay I'll go study electrical computer engineering because my dad says, this is what's going to change the world. And I studied it and and it was interesting, but I wasn't passionate about it. I didn't, it wasn't where my soul was. Like I I just didn't want to be working for a big company like IBM, you know, doing coding or whatever. So uh, as soon as I graduated and I graduated at the top of my class, I actually worked really hard to get that engineering degree. I had all these job offers. I said, no, I'm going to film school now. So I applied to two film schools, NYU and USC, got into USC, went to their graduate program, graduated, worked in Hollywood you know, as a development exec, got frustrated there because I wasn't actually creating anything. Like I was more of a, uh, I would choose projects. My job was to choose projects. And then I saw an opportunity to combine my passions. I met the founder of the game company, Sega, when they had just surpassed Nintendo, and he invited me to come to their headquarters in Japan and design games. I just jumped on that. This was the days of Sonic the Hedgehog and all their big games, Virtual Fighter, and it was an amazing experience. I actually worked with Michael Jackson. He was in our project. (laughs) He was a big simulation ride. And then after that, I, I was restless again. And I said, I'm going to form my own game company. I don't want to just work for Sega. I can do this on my own. And I jumped ship, came back to Silicon Valley, launched my first
1: startup. Wow. And like, did the the dots connect? Like, did your engineering degree help you?
0: Of course, because when I was doing the technology helped me a huge amount. In fact, the first game I had no money, like I was, you know, still young. I'd worked for Sega for one year. So I, you know, I didn't have a lot of money, enough money to live, but not enough money to hire a lot of people, especially engineers. So I coded the whole thing myself because I knew how to code and my dad was right. So I combined my artistic, uh, ambitions and the game did incredibly well it's a game that's still out there it's called gazillionaire and ironically it teaches people how to be entrepreneurs it's this game that teaches you how to be an entrepreneur and that that's that's got me started
1: we're excited to be collaborating with the israeli website ctech owned by calcalist israel's leading business newspaper CTEC is the gateway of the israeli high-tech to the tech world and vice versa if you're not already a regular reader, we strongly recommend that you check out c a l c a l i s t e c h. C-A-L-C-A-L-I-S-T-E-C-H.com to stay up to date on all high impact stories from the Israeli tech scene. And, and how do you teach people to be an entrepreneur?
0: How do you teach people? Well, the game just makes it fun. It's a really fun game. So it's a, it's a trading game that teaches you, teaches people about business and math and, and debt and growing companies. It's a business simulation. How I teach people today is different than the game I wrote. Um, I teach people like what we're doing right now. I get together with entrepreneurs at my company founder space, my accelerator, and I go deep with them on their business. I go deep with them on their team, on their on, on the strategy for getting there. That's how I teach entrepreneurs.
1: But that is so fascinating. Like, why did you want to build a game that teaches that at that stage?
0: So I'm an idealist and part of my idealism was I didn't want to build a violent game. I wanted to build a game that was as fun to play as the first person shooters and all the fighting games out there, but that actually taught people something. And, you know, I wasn't a business major, but I, the idea of building companies fascinated me, like, you know, becoming a gazillionaire. Who doesn't want to be a gazillionaire? Hmm. So um, I thought, well, I'll do gazillionaire. I'll, I had this concept that and it was set it's set in this outer galaxy and outer space with all these crazy creatures and i actually did it also as a vehicle for my creativity so i created that what gazillioner allowed me to do was create an entire world where all these people are trading weird and strange products there's all these planets and all these things that's what it allowed me to do and at the same time it allowed me to to help a lot of people so it's actually being used in colleges high schools and middle schools all you know, still today, years and years later, um, all over the world.
1: That is amazing. And was it scary to set off on your own?
0: It was. So I'm somebody who's pretty conservative with financially, like I don't want to be in debt. I don't want to be starving. I don't want to be homeless. And I was funding this myself. So it was, it's always like taking that leap, uh, can be scary. And especially if you're the type of person who doesn't, you know, who, who, you know, doesn't want it isn't, you know, I like to take risks, but I like to take intelligent risks, not just wild bets. So, but I believed in the product. I believed I could make this and put this out there and literally coded the whole thing. I did the artwork myself because I told you my mom is an artist. So I was doing the artwork. It's like really a handmade product. I, This was the early days of the internet. Literally, the internet was just coming into being at this time. And so um, I uploaded it. There's no other way to get it out there but to upload it to what they called a BBS. And that's a, a, a server, a bulletin board, a server. You upload it, and then geeks are on there, other geeks, and they are downloading software. And they downloaded my game, and they started to send me checks. They started to literally, because there was no e-commerce, checks in the mail, and then I would pack up all these floppy disks and mail it to them. And and what happened was the largest PC game publishing in the world, their QA team, their quality assurance team that tests games, got a hold of my game, started playing it, became addicted, and I got a a worldwide publishing
2: This is Steam?
0: What this was in the days, this was before Steam ever existed. The company was called Spectrum Holobyte Microprose. They made games like Civilization, Star Trek, all the all these early great games. So they were the publisher. Today, it's on Steam. Yeah, anybody can go today and get it on Steam. I negotiated a deal with them where I retained all the rights. I was that passionate. I was like, I'm not giving you my game. Like I am keeping the rights to this, but I will license it to you. So... Uh, I went down that path. And that was my first startup, very successful. And then I got into the internet, did all these internet startups. And and then I decided to form Space because I had so much fun working with other entrepreneurs.
1: I really want to hear about Founderspace, but I also, I'm, I'm curious, did your father approve uh, when you started off on your own? Oh, when I went to film school? So that time I was older, more mature. My
0: parents are cool. So they were like, I was like, I'm going to film school. I'm doing this. Like, uh, this is what I want to do. And they said, OK, that's what you want to do. Fine. You know, he, th- my parents would have let me do anything I wanted for undergrad. I just took my father's advice. And it didn't turn out to be bad advice. Like having actual skills that you can use to build things in the real world is a good thing.
1: Yeah, I'm ambivalent about it, because I want to say, like, in retrospect, maybe you should have followed your heart, but then you look at the results, and it makes you think, and I'm I'm sort of trying to think what the message is here, because you weren't happy studying uh, engineering. Uh, What do you think, like, what what do you think the message is here? The message
0: is follow your heart, because ultimately, I I got to where I am because I followed my heart, but uh, the, everything in life, you can't you make decisions at certain points in life. And even if you make a decision, like, who knows, you never know what other path you would have gone down to. Like, what if I had studied the arts? What if I had gone into film school as an undergrad? Would I be where I am today? Who knows? I had lots of points in my life where I could have stayed in Hollywood, like instead of jumping to games and Sega, maybe I would be producing and directing huge movies right now. I don't know. Like, I can't go back like maybe in some other parallel multiverse you know a, a version of me is living out that life being the hollywood person i'm not that person because i took a turn and you just take these turns the the meth here's the message the message is don't be afraid to take turns and just do what's most interesting to you at the time if you always feel like you are learning and growing you're making the right decision that's that at the end of the day that's it
2: Sounds to me like hugging the experience is the moral of the story because you went to to learn like the computer, but you studied computer. You were into it. You got high grades. You didn't take the decision and regretted it and thinking what you were going to do. So you took the most out of it, and then when you went through your heart, it actually gave you added value. So like maybe the moral of the story is just exactly what you did you you pushed through those walls you were persistent you made a decision you didn't regret it even at the end you went to the heart but it was you know steve jobs with connecting the dots in retrospect right
0: yeah and i didn't know that i wouldn't be passionate about you know electrical computer engineering i when i went into it i because in high school i'd coded you know i had been a coder and i had enjoyed it so in addition to making films and doing games and all the other stuff it was one of the things i enjoyed but when I got into the more electronics part you know I if I should have chosen something it would have been computer science over electrical computer engineering for my personality but you know you learn you experience you find out what you like and then you course correct and what I've learned is great artists great entrepreneurs anybody who does anything in the world is constantly course correcting so you're going out there you're trying new things you're pushing yourself and then you're and you're doing your best but if you're this is where most people fail. Most uh, people fail on projects simply because number one, they didn't surround themselves in the right people. Number two, they are heading in the wrong direction. They are working on something that is either impossible, it's just not gonna work, or something that doesn't play to their core strengths and they don't realize it. And they just keep going down that path, failure after failure after failure. You have to look at both what drives you, what makes you excited. And also, where do your talents really lie? Where can you, because we're all different, make the biggest impact? What are, What is your superpower? To speak to your podcast, what is your superpower? Figuring that out will guide you. And it took me a while to figure that out. And I finally did. So what's your superpower? It wasn't coding. <laughs> it wasn't even writing like i thought i would be uh, you know i thought there was a chance i could be a great screenwriter a great director it wasn't doing that my great superpower uh as you could probably tell wasn't even evident uh, initially my great superpower was taking complex ideas and distilling them down into something people could act upon and understand and and actually inspiring them to do that so that that is something it took me a while to figure this out because In addition to everything else I told you about my life, I was super shy. Like I was this incredibly shy person. So I wouldn't do public speaking. I couldn't even articulate anything. Took me a lot of work to actually become a point where I could actually even talk to you like I am now, like very comfortably about all these subjects. But I figured out, wow, I can build great businesses. I can uh, help entrepreneurs build their businesses because uh, the combination of being a creative person a uh, science uh, sci- uh, scientist, basically a computer scientist, technologist, and a business person, and looking at it through all those lenses, and then being able to zoom in on the things in their business that they need to transform to get to the next level. I said, "Wow, I'm that's what I do really well, and that's what I'm doing now."
2: Demystification.
0: Yeah, demystification. Uh, Seeing things that other people might not see, especially like I know having gone through and how hard it is to be an entrepreneur to do anything and a creative person. I've made a lot of creative projects, how hard it is to do that and have other people come in with a different perspective and experience and actually help start uh, shine a spotlight on those points that are holding you back. Those. So for me, that's my superpower. That's what I do really well when I work with entrepreneurs. And that's what gives me great satisfaction when I see when I can see, you know, a problem and then help guide them to break through that problem and actually transform what they're doing. Really making that impact is great. And then I can also I like teaching. So I like in the process of teaching the entrepreneurs how to do that for themselves.
1: So if, you know, there's all these entrepreneurs who have a startup. And, you know, the definition of success of a startup, um, I guess now with this current bubble burst, it's, uh, it's going to fast, fast track a few startups that maybe should have closed already, but There's a situation where some entrepreneurs have a startup that's currently not generating any revenue, but then, you know, you have to tell yourself, I'm going to change the world and it's taking time. And I have to be, you know, the whole, if you're crazy enough to change the world, then you can. And, and, and you're all, you're giving the other uh, end of this, which is to sometimes just acknowledge that, you know, you, you have to, you have to stop because it's not working. And I'm trying to think, how can an entrepreneur know when it's time to give up?
0: So, this is the hardest question. When do I quit what I'm doing? Like, it's really tough. And I made this mistake in one of my startups. I stuck with the idea way too long because everybody told me it was brilliant. I bought into it. I drank my own Kool Aid. I wanted to make it work. I didn't want to seem like a failure. And I just kept, I was building this early virtual world in the early days of virtual worlds. And literally, it was like this great idea where people, virtual avatars would walk across, like when you browse the web, literally turn the entire internet into a virtual space. Like on at Google, on all these websites, people, you could have avatars walking across chatting, but it didn't work. People, the momentum at that point in time was moving towards Facebook, social networks, and people didn't want to meet, didn't want to uh, have a virtual world across the internet. So the idea was failing, but I wouldn't give up on it. So- when I'm with entrepreneurs, I actually have fundamentals that, and I, I write about this in my book, Surviving a Startup in Depth. Like, what qualities, how can you analyze your business to know if it's really working or you are deluding yourself? Like, when are you giving up and when are you actually uh, moving or pivoting to something better? Oh, toughest decision an entrepreneur ever has to make. Like, it's brutal. And I will tell you the things. So, number one, The fundamentals, you have to look at the fundamentals. You have to look at your business through the eyes of your customer, your user. Who, what do they see? Literally, I have one rule that applies. You can never create demand. Like people believe, like a lot of people believe, like they listen to Steve Jobs or whatever, and they believe that, you know, you can't listen to the the world. You have to have a vision. You have to go and carry out this vision. and it, And all these people will suddenly realize that what you're doing is what they want. I'll tell you, in the real world, that never happens. Never happens. Every great product that broke through, the demand was already there. Now people might not have known they wanted it until they saw it and they might not have been able to even tell you what they wanted but the, but as soon as it came into being the demand was already waiting for it. So really great entrepreneurs don't focus at the beginning on just building a product. What they fo- th- what they are what I'd say they are is demand hunters. They are in the world trying all sorts of experiments like an oil wildcatter drilling a well trying to figure out where that extreme pent up demand That not being met by anybody else is waiting. And a great example for that, I'll give you a great example. So a great example for this is a company that we know today as YouTube. So the founders of YouTube, uh, when they started their company, they started a video dating site, a video dating site. Most people don't know this. Now, YouTube, if you look at YouTube, you know, the video dating, it seems very compelling. Like in the early days of the internet, they, you know, it seems natural. You'd want to see the person. You'd want to talk to them. You'd want to hear their voice. Well, nobody wanted to do that. They quickly found out after they had built the whole thing, nobody cared. There was no demand and they couldn't create it for video dating. So they were kind of floundering about trying to figure out what they wanted to do. And then they had this large video. Uh, that they had made and they wanted to share it with their friends. They literally wanted to share a video they had made with their friends, but there was no easy way to do this. So they said, Oh, but we could upload it to our video dating site. We've already built it for uploading videos and we could just share the link. That idea, that one insight, when they shared it, all their friends were like, Cool, my, can I use this? Can I share videos this way? And they suddenly realized, Wow, there are a lot of people out there who want to share videos hence the birth of YouTube they YouTube was literally a link sharing video site at first then it became the biggest broadcast network that we all know it is today but that wasn't their vision so it's stumbling upon this demand and if if that de- de- demand isn't there you have to analyze your business figure out exactly who your customers are and what they want and if they and I'll tell you if they are if they think it, it, if customers think your product is good you've already failed already failed like no good products succeed. The only products succeed that are great ones. Like people go to it and they're like, oh my God, I I, I want to use this. I need this. When can I get it? Mm-hmm. Those are the products that break through. And if you don't have that, literally you don't have anything.
1: So that's probably something that you look for yourself. Like when you, when entrepreneurs pitch you, I'm guessing that you, you like the, the, the entry point is for you to get excited and think, oh my God, that's amazing. If I'm the customer,
0: my goal is for me to get excited, right? Because I'm the one who is going to use it. I might not always be the customer. It might be some corporations, government, whoever they're selling to. Those people, I need to find evidence that, yeah, so if you're an entrepreneur, you need to show me evidence that you've gotten in with these customers, and these customers are just chomping at the bit to get what you have and they can't get it elsewhere because these are the companies that break through like if they can get it from a lot of other sources you're just you're never going to grow really fast you're going to be a small maybe if you execute really well a medium sized company but you're you're never going to take the market the ones that break through th- that demand is out there and this is true not just of being an entrepreneur it's the arts too like this is how films work you know some films like just take off like crazy some i books take off like you know they hit that demand it's out there people are waiting for that. And then there are other very well-written books, like incredibly well-made films, incredibly, like you could have make the best product in the world. But if people really don't, you know, see a big need for it, it just doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't matter how much time you put into it.
1: How much do you think that creativity is important for entrepreneurs? Well,
0: I'm a creative person. So naturally I'd, I'd lean on the creative side. I think it's extremely important. I think there are many different types of creativity in the world. There's visual creativity, there's creativity with language, there's creativity with ideas, there's creativity with business models, there's creativity with coding and technology. All different people excel in different types of creativity. And this is where, you know, I say surrounding yourself with amazing people is the key because you you, you might be lucky to, to spike in one area of creativity, but you're not going to spike in all of them. And some great business people don't have any creativity, but they are really good at attracting and, and building a team of creative people. So they might not particularly be wildly creative, but they are great leaders and great managers. And they they allow their team to actually push forward and, and, and set the direction and figure things out for the company. So there are all sorts of different talents you need to have. Um. And you need to see where you fit in the team. You might not be the best person to be CEO. Like the the best people to be CEO, honestly, are people who are just amazing at at attracting and motivating and finding great people. Those are are great CEOs. The others, um, there are other roles in the company that may be better for you. And these are things everybody needs to start to figure out for
2: themselves on the culture essence so like when you're roaming around and looking for these people the, the, there's also the culture gaps you say, you're talking about bringing them to the us so to bring them yes that that's also like a culture gap which is also a superpower to you know know how to bring those entrepreneurs how to work in a different ambiance in a different culture in a different society and industry
0: absolutely it's not easy for people from overseas to make it here there's they first of all if they don't know the language if the Leadership of the company can't communicate in English, and their English doesn't have to be perfect. Like, let's face it, half the successful entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley are from overseas, so English wasn't necessarily their native language. They still work; they've still been wildly successful in America. But you know, I don't know any of them who can't talk in English, so they have to be able to speak English. Culturally, you know, the U.S. Uh, and especially Silicon Valley, where I'm from, very open to other cultures so it's not i mean we you know we have successful entrepreneurs from every country on the planet and so the, the the barriers aren't as high as let's say i do i've done a lot all around the world so i've worked in japan extensively i've worked in china extensively you know south korea in those countries much harder for a foreigner to penetrate those markets those are very homogenous closed cultures uh, really difficult for foreigners to enter those markets place like the united states much much easier but you still um, there's a lot of cultures, like Europeans in general, like when I work with European entrepreneurs and I'm about to go back there, it depends on which country they're from Europe. Like if they're from Eastern Europe, they tend to be more aggressive and more driven uh, to make, uh, you know, to move fast and make big changes. If they're from a Western Europe, a lot of times they move slower and they move too slow slower than we do in silicon valley and i'm like culturally you guys have to speed up we, I, we can't wait a year for you to get this product to market like you guys you have to get it to market in 6 months you know, things like that they have to change their mindset on
1: right right so in founder space like how do you
0: help them so at founder space we do a lot of things so uh what we're doing lately is we're looking at a lot of entrepreneurs and we're picking out the ones we think are exceptional and really, really, really amazing. Um, And then we are basically helping them raise lots of capital, helping them uh, obtain their first US customers, because a lot of them will have customers back in their home country, uh, helping them uh, grow their teams here, kind of everything uh, an entrepreneur needs to get going. And we do it not just for... Uh, people from outside the U.S., but we do it for, for U.S. entrepreneurs too. So we we work globally. U.S. Canadian doesn't matter to us. What really matters is just that we we believe in the entrepreneurs. We believe in their vision, and we we think that their product will have a a, a very positive impact on the economy, on society, you know, on the world, solving real problems. I don't. I'm not interested in speculative things. I'm not interested in like the person who wants to get rich quick selling NFTs. You know those. You know those type of things. They, they if they're not adding real value to the world and changing people's lives in a positive way, I, I don't want to waste my time with it. At what stage do they come to you? So they come to us very early, very early. Uh, we like to see fully formed teams though, because like I said, the team is so important. If it's just you. You're and you're amazing, but you haven't taken the time to really build that A plus team of just surrounded yourself with amazing people. Then I'm probably not going to go with you. I'm probably going to say you have some homework to do. (laughs) Follow, you know, follow, you know, go read read surviving a startup. Follow the first rule, like get that team together. Number two, we like to see that they at least have a product in development and that they have at least engaged with their customers on a deep level. And then we will do an analysis of their business. And when we analyze their business, we look for certain traits that really show us if this is going to be a good market. Number 1, like I said, is the demand. Like the demand has to be there. You're not going to educate people into loving your product. You're not going to change people's mindset. You're not going to do all these things you might think you you, you great companies should do because they never do them. They are already there, they're already set. So we have to see those things are already there. And then we like to see another factor. And that is truly scalable businesses. Businesses that can grow exponentially, because I'm in the venture world, and if I put my money and my time, if I invest those in your company, I'm not going to want a, a, a 2x return, because I'm going to, you know, what we're going for is 100x, like this company's, or a 1000x, you know, this is what we're looking for. What, what traits does a company have to have to, to achieve that? I will tell you. So number one, uh, they have to have a product that literally It doesn't require finding endless numbers of talented people to grow it. So, for example, a consultancy is really hard to scale, like because consultants are like these high-value people with a lot of knowledge, uh, and trying to recruit them and get them into the company, and each one has a limited bandwidth, very, very difficult. And it's a service. And it's just no. Well, service companies work well if it's software as a service, but not humans as a service. Yeah, humans who who are hard to find, hard to recruit, uh, hard to retain, very difficult businesses to scale. Consultancies, um, but we do like software as a service because sir, you know any service that can be automated. Like any, if you can use technology to actually automate processes, make other people more efficient, make people, enable people to do things they couldn't do before, like connect on social networks, buy products online. These types of businesses really, uh, they're the goal. And then we want to see that not only can you automate it, but that you figured out a certain area where there's that extreme need and you figured out how to deeply monetize your customer literally uh customers uh, not only need this, they will pay for it and they won't pay for it once. So if there's a business out there where every each customer pays you once and then disappears, really hard business to grow <laughs> because every one of the biggest costs of any business is customer acquisition. It's going out and buying customers. So uh you, for, so for us, we don't want you to constantly uh, we want when you get a customer, You keep that customer. And and we want you to show us that you can keep that customer for years. That customer will keep paying you and they don't have to pay you a lot of money. If they're paying you for years, that money adds up. So literally companies that can lock onto a customer, provide value that nobody else is, and then bring them, and this is the key, to truly great businesses. Bring them into an ecosystem that is hard to replicate. They come into an ecosystem and the more they participate in that ecosystem, the more value they're getting out of it and the more value they're adding to it. And let me give you an example. There's tons of examples out there. Amazon, like we all, you know, most people don't want to buy from Amazon, but, Amazon <laughs> but we all buy from Amazon. Why? Because Amazon has built this ecosystem. First of all, they have managed to get this marketplace where they have buyers and sellers. So you go onto Amazon to buy, you know there's a lot of sellers there, right? There's a ton of sellers. And the sellers are there because the buyers are there. And then while you're using Amazon, they have another thing, reviews. Every time you're using it and writing a review, you're making that ecosystem even more valuable to everybody else in it. And then Amazon does their part and making it super easy for you to get products and return products and everything in between and get them quickly, faster than anybody else. So suddenly you're in this ecosystem, really hard to extract yourself. And the bigger they become, the harder they become to displace. When we see companies like that, the, you know, that's the golden ticket for us.
1: I think Peter Thiel calls it the network
0: effect. That it Absolutely. You can call it a marketplace. You can call it a network effect. It, uh when you when the more people are participating in this network or in this marketplace and they're adding value to each other really hard to displace them those businesses are the ones that become these giant companies
1: but Steve like Don't sometimes startups come to you and maybe, I don't know, for example, their business model is such that it's a one-time payment and at the moment they don't know how to retain a customer, but based on your experience, didn't it happen to you that you're able to tell them, listen, this, if you just shift this and that, and you know, basically you're investing smart money. So don't you find yourself sort of giving them really revolutionary tips for them that actually tip over their whole business model, but make it a, a mutual success? That's what I love doing. Exactly. So there
0: are entrepreneurs out there who figured something else. figured something out there. They've got a great team. They've identified demand, but they have the wrong model. Like they are they they may they're literally not uh they're either not they're not charging their customer in the right way. So a lot of times if it's a high ticket item like a car, it's okay to charge the person once because how many times are you gonna buy a car anyway? And there's enough money and enough profit margin in a big ticket item like a car to actually go out and buy ads on television, buy ads on the internet, you know, market it like crazy. Yes. So for high ticket items with high profit margins where you have a unique competitive edge, those you can charge a lot of money for and you can sell them once. But for most businesses, honestly, they aren't that so any gadget out there or whatever so a lot of people come to me with a hardware gadget and i'll be like you know that's great but in 6 months you know in shenzhen china you're going to have 20 competitors like who are putting out this exact product and copying all your innovation and you're there's going to be no distinguishing so the only thing you're going to be able to do is come down on price and then i'll look at that and i'll say is there a, look this hard this hardware thing that you've built this gadget it has software. Is there a way to focus on that software and, and lock those customers into a subscription model? But they're not just going to pay for no reason. You have to provide the value. So we have to start going deep on, on what those customers really want, how to lock them in, how to how to build you know, moats around your business, barriers to entry that other people can't get in, and then how to monetize those customers over a long period of time. Then we start to get into something that's doable.
1: And then, like, what about people that come to you with an idea? Like, I know that it's for many startups, it's super challenging to actually find uh, a CTO, not to mention a CTO that answers, you know, the traits that you're detailing as necessary for, for success. Like, do you sometimes find yourself connecting between different founders? Does that happen?
0: I do. Right. A, a lot. And honestly, finding those that great technologists really hard because they could be working at Google making a small fortune and and you're trying to recruit them to your startup on your vision and you're offering them some worthless paper some worthless shares at this point that are only backed by a dream you know it's very hard to get them to commit but those people are out there and this is what I tell entrepreneurs number 1 people want to do things that are meaningful to them so you aren't going to recruit them with the money because you're never going to match Google or Microsoft or Facebook or any of these companies in terms of salary at the beginning. What you're going to, what you need to tap into are people who share the same vision for you. So whatever your vision is, like if you want to make fishing more sustainable, like the fishing industry, or you want to, you know, you want to remake the restaurant business, the food business to, to be more organic or do s- something in the food business, whatever your vision is, uh find people who are totally passionate about this vision. Now, how do you find them? Well, Go to organ, you know, there are different groups online about like if it's sustainable fishing, if it's about organic food, whatever it is, go to those passion groups and start to talk to people, network them. Are some of them technologists? Well, maybe your person is one of them who really cares about it. Another way is don't go to business networking. If you want to find a technologist, go to the places where technology people hang out. What are the websites where the technology people are commenting on? You know, the forums and stuff where they're all, you know, Stack Overflow and stuff where they're all talking. Can you get in this dialogue? Go to the meetup groups. Even more importantly, where they're talking about MongoDB and the and Node.js and the latest technologies, and start to meet the people at these meetup groups. They're, you're suddenly going to be the only non-tech person there, surrounded by technical people, and all you have to do is find one where you have a good chemistry with, who actually wants to leave whatever they're doing and do, you know, and do a startup, and they are also, you know, looking. The, Like I said, you're not going to convince somebody who's already happy at Google to leave. You're going to convince somebody who's already thinking about leaving. You don't change people. What you do is end up finding somebody who they're already wanting to do something like this, and you happen to be the one that, that talks to them at just the right time. So you have to go out there into the real world and start doing the hard work. And that's when you find these people.
1: It sounds like you're applying the same line of thought for the startup to the recruiting part of the startup. Like the demand applies here, too. The demand is, all
0: you know, you're not going to create demand. You're not going to change a person's mindset. You just, you know, you're, you know, unless you're an incredible preacher out there and you can convert them. But, uh, you know, most people aren't that what you're really going to do is is you're out there looking for people who already want to do this who have the qualifications and the passion and the drive just like you and it's not an easy process and that's why just like just like you do with your startup yet yeah, you're out there right and that's and if you can do this with people like the entrepreneurs i see who go out into the real world find these people identify them bring them together as a team motivate them boy they can do it with anything, right? They can do it with their customers. They can do it with investors. If I see that they've done it with the team, I suddenly realize they can do this across all the different aspects of growing a business.
2: And, and as, as Captain Huff, right, I, you know, yes. what, you, as, as doing that, you know, also in the gaming space. So here, here like um, in uh, Israel, we already have degrees for gaming and stuff like that. And and the the connection between creativity and also the programming, it's such a big hype here. And, you know, they, yeah I always say this in uh, Israel, there's no 16-year-old that wants to be a cybersecurity guy. There's a 16-year-old that wants to be a gamer that became a cybersecurity guy. So at the end of the, the day, like, what would you say that these entrepreneurs, especially in that industry... You know, how would they get to doing that for international games, you know, like, I don't know, Tetris or Tomb Raiders or anything that, and the portfolio where they're really talented, but they can't actually, like, they, the gap is not being Sega in Japan and not being, uh, you know, in the United States. So, you know, the demand is there, but how can they really get even, the, you know, a, a platform to, to, get, to start doing that entrepreneurship in a young age? So the beauty, the beauty of today, this is
0: the beauty today. That all the information in the world is at your fingertips, literally wherever you are in the world. You know, you could be in Israel, Mongolia, South Africa, Silicon Valley, doesn't matter. All the information is there. All the people are there. All the relationships are there. You just have to use it. Literally, you know, I'm a gamer. Captain Hoff is my gaming handle. Like I'm a total gamer. I've made games. You know that. I've been in the industry. Uh, I, you know, the ones who make it in the industry, they don't wait for somebody to offer them something. They go out there and do it. So gaming, the beauty of gaming is literally you don't need a lot of money to create a game. Like you just need the talent. Like if you get other, find other like-minded people, some artists out there yourself, you can online. They don't even have to live in the same location. You can start creating a game together. You can put it up on Steam. You can put it on iOS. You can put it on Android. Your game can be, you, you have a worldwide market overnight and that game can be a hit and that game can make you a lot more money than you could ever get working at Blizzard or any, you know Activision, any of these big game companies. You can do on your own. And also, if you create a game, even if you don't, if it never becomes a hit, but you really show that you d- released a quality product, it's a great portfolio piece for getting hired into electronic arts or wherever you may want to work in the future. So do it. Don't it's, you know, don't just dream about it, just do it. And then it happens and suddenly you find, wow, and you start to network with all these other gamers, go to game conferences. Suddenly you figure out, and this is true of any industry in the world, doesn't matter if music, film, whatever you're in, uh, diving in, there's no substitute for diving in and doing
1: it. And Steve, like you're living a pretty high stakes landscape. And you were also saying about yourself that you're a conservative and you sound very relaxed and confident and i'm wondering do you have any daily routines or what helps you stay focused and uh, and calm so i'm not a conservative politically just so you know i am uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I i'm conservative with my cash i'm somebody who is not necessarily relaxed like i don't feel like some people don't worry about money at all they're like whatever happens you know i'm more i want to know my future i don't want to take you know, crazy risks and end up, you know, losing all my money. Uh, So in that sense, you know, you're always dealing with stress. Uh, A lot of us deal with anxiety issues. You know, what I do is I'm, this is one of the keys I use uh, for helping myself is I've been through enough to suddenly realize that no matter how bad it seems, it's not as bad as it seems nothing is as bad as it seems at the time our minds amplify everything and so you have to be able to catch yourself and and when you're starting to feel anxiety when you're starting to blow things up that aren't really big and get a perspective and what i do is as soon as i start to feel anxiety i remember i have triggered myself to remember this when was the last time i felt this anxiety can i even remember the last time You know, there are so many events in your life that you think are horrible, you know, that are just, you know, a a deal fell through, you got in a car accident, your car got wrecked, whatever it is, you're breaking up from a relationship, you feel like it's, you know, it's everything is falling apart. But six months later, those aren't big deals. And a lot of the little stresses we have in the day, which are some of the hardest to manage, you know, these little things that get throw us off kilter and make us, you know, anxiety ridden. Those things we can't even remember a week later, let alone three months. Like they just, they just disappear. So whenever you start to feel anxiety, say, why am I making myself feel this? I'm not even going to remember this in a few months, and then in a couple of years, you know, none of this will matter, no matter how big it seems. As long as I'm alive and able and breathing and able to do stuff, none of it matters. And having that perspective uh, definitely helps me uh, be pretty calm in the face of like, whatever's happening.
1: I think it was Mark Twain that says the worst things in my life never actually happened to me.
0: Yes they're all in your head. (laughs) Mark Twain is brilliant with those things. We play out all these scenarios in our head that never actually happen. Even the ones that are actually happened. I mean, they actually are, the bad things are happening are never that bad. They're really never that bad. So we just need to drop them. We just need to, as soon as they crop up, you need to say, well, this isn't going to have any material effect on the direction I'm headed.
1: Do you sometimes like have entrepreneurs call you up freaking out? Uh, And are you the voice that calms them? I had an entrepreneur. He's like, I'm getting kicked out of my
0: apartment. To, you know, next week they've just turned off the electricity. I'm totally out of money. I can't. The, you know, you, you name it, right? And I'm like, calm down. <laughs> he goes, You got to get me the money tomorrow. You got to. Get... <laughs> We're gonna figure this out. It actually ended up working out, uh, but it. You, there are real problems out there. You know, entrepreneurs, you're setting yourself up for. I write about this in the beginning of one of my books, like Surviving a Startup. I I say, you know, if you want the hardest job in the world, which is going to constantly put you in, in, in extremely difficult positions where you will have the worst boss in the world, the boss that will never, ever let you go, that will be with you in the middle of the night when you wake up nagging you to do more, and on weekends, on vacations, be an entrepreneur.
1: Did the uh, film school Steve ever think of writing a screenplay?
0: I've written I've written a dozen screenplays, and and uh, some of them I optioned, uh, some of them I uh, sold, but none of them got made into movies, which I found extremely frustrating. Uh, and I decided if I can't be the best screenplay writer in the world, like I had, a, you know, and then I'm going to do something where I can be the best. And these are where you make really hard decisions in your life. And uh, you never know, like, am I giving up too early? Am I not trying hard enough? Uh, but I believed I gave it a full shot. Like I, I worked in TV, in the TV business. I got promoted up to development executive. I saw all the industry runs. I did writing. I made the relationships. I made some sales, but not a, the, the, none of my stuff was breakthrough. And a lot of times you can be good, but like I said before, good doesn't get you anywhere. Only great does. Figure out what you're great at.
1: I was just thinking about, you know, the, the, you have so many start of stories? It sounds like a perfect screenplay. Oh, it's not oh my own thing, okay, I was just telling you about that. so uh,
0: yes, uh, I think it would be a fun screenplay i would love I'd love to hire a better writer than I am to write.
2: It's sort of gazillionaire. That's the screenplay,
0: yes, gazillionaire, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the perfect name. What's like the next goal that you hope to conquer? Uh, I always have new goals. Because I love change in life, so there are a few goals I'm having. So one of them, one of them is, uh, you know, I want to continue to work with amazing, amazing entrepreneurs and help them work with them. So I don't work with a lot of entrepreneurs. I, I I found that working with a few amazing ones is better than working with, you know, lots. I educate. Lots, hundreds of entrepreneurs, but I and and I hear their pitches and I and I try to help them out, but I don't commit to growing their companies unless they're breakthrough. So, uh, working with more amazing entrepreneurs is my is my number one goal. Number two goal is I have some dreams around how to, and I haven't executed on these yet, but I have dreams on how to change how we speak about. Uh, social ideas, politics, social it's, I, topics that are very sensitive, most people end up shutting down and not listening to the opposing side of any political issue, of any social issue, you know, whether they believe in climate change or they're climate change denier, whether they believe, you know, in... Whatever it is, you know, on the right or the left of politics, I want to uh enable people to come together and actually engage with and have civil productive discussions with people of the opposite beliefs. I think the world needs more of that. I think a lot of our problems will only be solved that way. And I'm working on a platform to do that. So that's one of my next projects. Huh, that sounds utopian. It's totally. I, I, I don't if you don't dream, you don't get anywhere. <laughs> I'm not. I don't know if it'll work. <laughs> is is there demand? I don't know, so I have to run a minimum viable product test on this.
1: Okay, I don't think any political conversation ever ended with the other side saying, "Yeah, you're right, I'm going to switch side." No, it it it
0: doesn't. But people do change their opinions all the time. People modify their opinions, and I think a lot of it is going into it with an open mind. Of I don't have to totally agree with this person, but I have to listen to them, and there may be pieces of what they say. Uh, that resonate with me. So it's understanding that people are never totally right or totally wrong. Ideas are never totally right or totally wrong. Coming at it from that perspective is where we can start to be constructive. So here's the thing. And you can go to the site. It is 5000visionaries.com. So I just put up the site, 5000visionaries.com. Go there. You can engage with me there. If this type of thing, you can read what it is. You can read what the concept is. If this type of thing is interesting to you, I'm open to collaborating. I want to start launching the minimum viable product with people out there.
1: You know who could be a fantastic partner for this? Um, Adam Grant, who wrote the book Think Again. Oh, I don't know, Adam. Maybe introduce me. I... Oh, I wish we did, uh, but maybe look into that. I think it's a uh, write-up what you're looking for. Okay, well, I'll read the book. And uh, where else can people find you if they want to pitch, if they want to reach out? Okay, so I'm super, super easy to
0: find. Uh, you can find me at foundersspace.com. Founderspace.com. That's my website. You can contact me there. There's contact. There's tons of videos of me. There's my books, Make Elephants Fly, Surviving a Startup, The Five Forces. They're all there. Or you can find me on all the social networks under Founderspace. Particularly a good one is LinkedIn. You can contact me on LinkedIn.
1: Thank you so much for doing this.
0: Thank you. Real life.
1: Superpowers.
2: powers.